Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I am continuing my book review of The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley, and we are going to be talking about chapter nine, which covers temperature control. Before I get started on the meat of today's episode, I wanted to do a couple of homestead reports. Um, so first and foremost, thanks so much for the wonderful response I had to my Hive Jive interview or interviews, I guess I should say. I'm really happy that people enjoyed it. Um, I saw that I have some new followers. Welcome. Thank you for joining me. I hope you find my podcast interesting and maybe even helpful in some way. In terms of what's actually happening here on the ground, um, we're getting to the point where my tomato plants are producing. I haven't had like a full harvest yet, but it's going okay. I'm not sure my bean plants are going to make it. One set got eaten by deer and um, the other set was eaten by some kind of pest and I've had a really hard time controlling it. I think it was a kind of caterpillar and um, as a result all the leaves are very lacy and it's not looking very strong. I'm not sure what's going to happen there but at least three plants are quite tall now and still holding on so fingers crossed I might get something. Uh, my corn is going okay. I mentioned previously that I had accidentally spaced them too close together, so that's something that I will be correcting next year. I have had my first mini harvest, uh, two cobs that are very, very small, <laughs> maybe four inches long, um, but it's something and I'm pleased that I got anything considering that um, they clearly weren't planted as well as I'd hoped. Uh, also, I did that thing where I just kind of planted everything and let it go with minimal fussing. And as a result, I didn't really read a super amount into how corn fruits. So for some reason, I thought all the ears, the cobs, the ears of corn would be on the top of the plant. And they actually grow uh, between the main stalk and like a uh, a leaf offshoot and in that little V is where they grow. So that took me by surprise. Um, that's something new for me to learn. I'm continuing with the ever present battle of weeding everything by hand and then mulching the beds to try and prevent further regrowth. And I have finally started on my very much neglected side bed area. Uh, the part closer to the house has been done, but the big circular bed that I've basically just abandoned to weeds and wildflowers needs more work. And I did, um, I did leave it this long on purpose actually, because we have a full nectar flow of things like goldenrod and, uh, some of the other things, um, fleabane and some other of these very tall plants. And I had those come up this year and I really wanted to make sure I knew what the plants were before I pulled them because I want my bees to be able to have as much nectar as possible. Before I actually get to talking about my bees, just real quick little chicken update. Uh, Agatha, old lady Agatha, is back on her pain meds. Um, 
the weather has started to fall at night and we've actually had some much cooler days. And you can see that the daylight hours are getting shorter and so the chickens have slowly started their molt. And for anyone who is new here or isn't familiar with chickens, chickens will shed their feathers once a year in the fall and then regrow them. And it's a very tiring and itchy process. So regrowing feathers requires a lot of protein. This is the time of year when I will increase their protein in their food. I give them a different kind of pellet food. I increase their treats of like insect proteins. Uh, sometimes I even scramble up some eggs and give that back to them and so on and so forth. And um, it, like I said, it makes them uncomfortable and they can be a little irritable. They'll also stop laying when they are heavy into the molt because they need all the protein and energy for regrowing feathers. So I noticed Agatha just seemed a little quiet and I saw that the molt was coming in. So I uh, started her on the pain meds and within about 24 hours, she seemed more comfortable. And when I had her, because I use a um, needleless syringe to, you know, carefully drip the pain meds into her mouth, I gave her a full body inspection and she might have lost a little weight. She's still very hefty, but her crop never really feels full anymore, which I am a little concerned about. But hopefully, again, it's just her being kind of uncomfortable and so maybe not eating as much. She also is infested with lice again. I have the hardest time controlling lice in that coop because one doesn't have a proper beak. The other one has kind of a messed up beak. And then Agatha, I think, is just too arthritic to really you know, clean and, and groom all the lice away. And I've been trying all kinds of things that don't involve pesticides, like very strong pesticides that linger in the environment because I have bees. And I also use the deep litter method where there's a natural composting that happens. And that doesn't happen if I kill off all the beneficial insects. And clearly it just wasn't enough to hold the lice. So I finally bit the bullet. And what I did was I... Um, used a very 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 small amount of Frontline Plus which is a flea and tick treatment it's a topical liquid treatment that you give to dogs and, um, and maybe cats obviously I have the dog one because I have three dogs and I had read that you can give this at a very very minor dose much like you would on a dog where you just drop the liquid on the back between the shoulder blades and I did try that with her and I did notice some improvement, but that only happened a couple of days ago. So watch this space. I'll let you know how things go. I mean, the good news is that she didn't drop dead from it or have any kind of reaction to it in any way. No rash, no, you know, blistering, nothing. She she was totally fine. So fingers crossed it will work. Um, I have really considered whether... I should try and find her a situation with someone who keeps chickens in the house because keeping her inside is really the only way to keep lice off her at this point. But I don't really know a lot of people with house chickens. I would have to advertise. And I worry about that because, you know, she's not an easy chicken in the sense that she does have a lot of illnesses. She's kind of a hospice chicken because she has that weird mass that could be a tumour that we're just sort of... I mean, there's no, nothing we can do for it. So we're just letting her live day by day. And I don't want to push that responsibility onto anyone else, but I'm not set up for a house chicken. So 
I don't know, watch this space. I keep trying to improve her living situation outside as best as I can. And and she is happy and she does love her flock mates and, and she is a good chicken and a sweet girl. So I don't know. I just, I hope I'm doing enough. I, I, I guess it never feels like enough, but hopefully it is. Anyway, in Hive News, the full flow has finally started and I'm so grateful. However, my girls are still spicy as hell and, um, well, it's mixed. I think I went out 10 days ago and I tried to get back into Hive 1, which is my Ohio lineage queen. And they were extremely unhappy. And although I was able to get some information about what was going on with them, um, I wasn't able to do the mic check that I had planned, in part because they were getting so aggressive that I was getting stung through my suit, which never happens, um, at least to me. I have a, a, you know, it's a pretty sturdy suit. My girls are usually pretty chilled out. This was a first time for me. They were just so determined to get me. Uh, so I just decided it wasn't worth pushing them anymore. I don't want them sacrificing themselves. I was getting upset. They're obviously upset. So I was done. But I will say I'm glad I still went out because what I did get to see in that hive is that they're not planning on swarming, which, you know, I knew the chances were, were low because we've been in a dearth for so long. And that is not the ideal time to swarm because they are low on resources. Um, so that, but it was good to be reassured because I am behind on getting in there because they have been so bad tempered. I also was able to ascertain that the queen is still there. Queen Caredwin is still alive and well. And based on what I found, which was one frame of fully capped brood, two frames of mixed brood, uh, so sort of eggs to smaller larva that I know there was a brood break during the dearth, but now the queen is back up to laying again. And that's good. That's what I want to see because as we move into fall, now the hive is working to boost their population in preparation for winter and boost their stores. And my plan is to let them store as much of this full nectar flow as possible. I might, if one hive is particularly prolific at honey production, I might take a frame or two just to try. Goldenrod is supposed to have a very specific taste and a lot of people actually don't like it. I don't think I've ever tried it. So I would like to try some if I can, but this is the time of year when my priority is making sure that they have enough to get them through winter. Now on the 12th, when you know, a little bit more time had passed, I went into hive number two, which is my Southern queen, Queen Marker. And I was out there for an over an hour because it's been so long that I did a full inspection where I broke the hive down box by box and I went through frame by frame to figure out, you know, what's going on in there. Now the girls were defensive, but not as bad as I'd experienced with hive number one. So I was not stung, at least that I noticed. Um, although by the end of that hour, there were a handful of very determined guard bees who followed me further away from the hive than they usually would. But overall, it went pretty well. And I was really, really pleased by what I saw in this hive. 
So firstly, there was a lot more brood than I had seen in hive number one. So it looks like if they did take a brood break, it was much shorter. The brood pattern is beautiful. It is solid. It's frames just packed from side to side with beautiful capped brood. I was just delighted. Lots of pollen frames, lots of pollen around the edges of the brood nest, really good honey stores as well. Like they've obviously had to use some up, but not as much as I had worried about. I found the queen. So I carefully moved her frame aside and then I did a mite check. I used the alcohol rinse method. And I couldn't believe what I got. I got one mite out of a 300 bee sample. This is insanely low for this time of year. I thought it had to be a mistake. So I continued like swirling the alcohol rinse, you know, giving it longer, letting it sit longer. But that was it. There was just the one mite. So fingers crossed that uh, this was an accurate reading. I will, of course, do another mite test. Um next month just to be sure because I haven't been able to do as many this year I, I usually like to do one once a month and that just hasn't happened um so yeah that's good I'm really hoping that my other hives will show a similar low mite count if not I do have treatments on hand so watch this space I'm hoping that the other hives will also be less defensive and it's just a case of finding the right kind of weather to get in there. We've had a lot of rain, we've had some foggy days, you know, just days where it's not a good idea to be in there. Uh, so if you guys could give me wishes for good weather, that would be great. And um, hopefully I will be able to come back in two weeks and give you some updates about how all of my girls are doing. Now onto the the meat of today's episode, we are returning to The Lives of Bees by Thomas Seeley and we're on chapter nine. So we are very close to the end now. After this, there's just uh, two more chapters and chapter nine is titled Temperature Control. And just a quick note, this might have been my favourite chapter so far. I'm not entirely sure why, but the information on how bees create temperature rises within the hive and work to lower temperature within the nest really just captivated me and made me fall even more in love with this incredible insect. So I really hope that you enjoy this chapter as much as I have. As with all the chapters in this book, it opens with a quote. No warmth, no cheerfulness, no healthful ease, no comfortable feel in any member. No shade, no shine, no butterflies, no bees, no fruits, no flowers, no leaves, no birds, November. This is by Thomas Hood from his book November, originally published in 1844. While many insects perish or end their life cycle before winter hits, or they lie dormant underground until the spring, honeybees cluster together within their nest, shivering to maintain a steady temperature. When broodless, the core of the winter cluster will rarely fall below 18 Celsius, which is 64 Fahrenheit, while the outermost layer of that cluster stays above 7 Celsius or 44 Fahrenheit. The ambient temperature, so the air temperature, around that cluster can be as low as minus 20 celsius which is minus 4 fahrenheit 
and still the cluster temperature remains steady. When the bees are rearing brood, which starts in late winter and ends in early autumn, the brood nest is maintained between 34.5 Celsius and 35.5 Celsius, which is 94 to 96 degrees Fahrenheit. This temperature will vary by less than a half a degree Celsius or one degree Fahrenheit, even if the outside temperature drops below zero degrees Celsius or 32 Fahrenheit or raises above 40 Celsius or 104 Fahrenheit. So this level of accurate, steady temperature control is honestly just remarkable. Studies have shown that honeybee brood is extremely sensitive to even small changes of temperature outside the normal range of 35.5 Celsius to 35.5. One study conducted by Jürgen Tautz and other colleagues examined the effect of small changes in brood nest temperature on the developing brood and the subsequent behaviour of those bees as adults. What they did is they incubated capped brood in incubators that were set to 32 degrees Celsius, 90 degrees Fahrenheit, 34.5 Celsius, 94 degrees Fahrenheit, and then 36 Celsius or 97 degrees Fahrenheit. Each group of bees was carefully labelled upon emergence and then introduced to a foster colony housed within an observation hive. A sugar water feeder was placed 300 metres or 980 feet from the hive and the foragers were observed. It was noted that a bee raised at the lower temperature of 32 degrees Celsius or 90 degrees Fahrenheit performed just 10 circuits of the waggle dance after returning to their hive. Whereas those bees raised at the higher temperatures performed 50 circuits on average. The bees raised at the lower temperature also demonstrated less precision while transmitting directions via the waggle dance. Later work looked at the effect of brood rearing temperature on bee brains. Results showed that temperature had a direct effect on the connections between neurons in the centres of information integration, which is known as mushroom bodies. These connections were highest in bees that matured at the normal brood nest temperature and were significantly lower in bees raised at temperatures just one degree Celsius or two degrees Fahrenheit above or below normal. So basically, brood rearing temperature has an absolutely direct effect on the development of a bee's brain. To fully understand how honeybees maintain a, a stable temperature within the brood nest, we need to examine how they produce heat and how heat is subsequently lost. Both of these components are equally important when looking at the whole. The processes that affect heat production and loss are fundamentally the same within wild colonies and those managed by us. But how much effort is required for each differs greatly depending on nest structure. Therefore, we see a difference in wild colonies and our managed hives. Overall, colony thermoregulation or temperature control is generally easier for wild colonies due to the nature of their nest cavities. So, for instance, the thickness of the tree cavity, the use of propolis to seal all cracks and coat the walls and the ceilings, etc, etc. 
Those of us who have overwintered our colonies in cold areas already know how important insulation and wind access or draftiness is when it comes to overwintering success. This is because these two things, insulation and draftiness, influence the microenvironment of the nest colony. Increasing insulation and decreasing cold drafts directly slows the heat flow between the microenvironment and the macroenvironment of the outside world. In simple terms, even if the outside air temperature is bitterly cold, a wild colony living in a deep-walled, well-insulated tree cavity will need to produce less heat to maintain the brood nest temperature. This next section is called Evolutionary Origins of Colony Thermoregulation. How do bees generate heat to warm their brood nest? They use their flight muscles. Flying is tremendously energy intensive. A honeybee consumes large amounts of energy to fly and in turn produces a certain amount of heat through metabolic processes. Thomas Seeley points out that as much as 80% of energy used for honeybee flight appears as heat in the muscles. Interestingly, the rate of heat loss during flight is relatively low, with a honeybee's thorax reaching temperatures usually just 10 to 15 Celsius or 18 to 27 Fahrenheit above the ambient temperature. Not only does flight generate heat, but conversely, heat is essential to allow the process of flight. A honeybee must maintain a thorax temperature above 27 degrees Celsius or 81 degrees Fahrenheit in order to fly. Any cooler and the flight muscles cannot achieve the high rate of wing beats needed to allow the bee to take off and then fly. Due to this, honeybees have evolved the ability to warm up their muscles in order to reach the required temperature for flight. They do this by activating the wing levator, which is the lift, and wing depressor, or downwards, muscles at the same time. These muscles contract isometrically, i.e. the muscles are active but not changing in length, which results in heat production but very few or no wing vibrations. So basically, the bee is standing still, contracting these muscles, but the wings aren't moving noticeably. It is these very same muscles that are used to heat the brood comb. Studies that recorded the temperature of foragers preparing to fly and nurse bees heating capped brood showed identical temperature rises of two to three degrees Celsius or four to five Fahrenheit per minute in thorax temperature. In both settings, the wings of the bee remain motionless. To warm brood comb, a honeybee will either press her thorax onto the capped cells of sealed brood, or she will sit in an empty cell surrounded by the sealed brood, remaining there for as long as 30 minutes with her thorax heated to 41 degrees Celsius or 106 degrees Fahrenheit, warming the pupa in adjacent cells. So she's basically functioning as a carefully positioned little space heater. The ability of the colony to thermoregulate has evolved simultaneously with the bee's unique social life. A group of bees has a greater capacity to produce heat than an individual, and also has a reduced loss of heat per individual bee, as each bee is insulated in part by the temperature of her sisters. 
In simple maths terms, it's an issue of surface area. A single bee has an average surface area of 3.8 square centimetres, which is 0.6 square inches, whereas the surface area of some 15,000 bees, the average wild colony size going into winter, condensed down into that tight winter cluster is about 1,000 square centimetres or 155 square inches. When a bee is huddled within a cluster, her surface area is effectively reduced by 0.067 square centimetres or 0.01 square inches, which is 60 times smaller than when she is standing alone. So this is an absolutely considerable and therefore highly significant difference. Next section is benefits of temperature control. The ability to heat or cool a nest cavity provides many benefits to a honeybee colony. We have seen how even tiny changes in brood nest temperature can dramatically affect an adult bee's foraging and communication behaviours. High temperatures can also weaken beeswax comb, causing the heavy honey-laden combs to collapse, which can then lead to many deaths of bees that might become trapped under these structures within the nest. The optimal temperature for the full activity of honeybees is 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Increasing this temperature by just 10 to 15 degrees Celsius or 18 to 27 degrees Fahrenheit, which brings us to a temperature of 45 to 50 Celsius or 113 to 122 Fahrenheit, will be deadly to the honeybee within just a few hours time. This low tolerance for high temperatures demonstrates that honeybees have not evolved enzymes that maintain stability within these higher ranges. This makes sense if we consider that any enzyme that was stable in these temperatures would likely function far slower at the lower usual temperature that the bees require for maximum productive activity. Quick terminology note. What is an enzyme? An enzyme is defined as a substance produced by a living organism which acts as a catalyst to bring about a specific biochemical reaction. And I got that from Oxford Languages. To put that in simpler terms, an enzyme is a substance, usually a protein, that acts as a little helper molecule. This molecule, molecule excuse me, is fragile and therefore will fail at higher temperatures, as high temperatures means more activity. High temperatures speed up reaction rates, but this in turn puts more stress on the enzyme structure, eventually leading to failure or the enzyme breaking apart. So keep that in mind when the enzyme is mentioned throughout this chapter. So based on what I've just discussed, we can see that the significance of adapting to avoid nest overheating is obvious, but Seeley asks, what then has favoured the evolution of nest warming? Arguably, the main benefit is faster brood development, as this will allow for rapid colony growth, which is beneficial whenever, whenever a colony's overall population has dropped, such as after winter, following predation or swarming, etc. Studies such as one by Vern G. Millam have found that brood development slows significantly at cooler temperatures. Millam found that brood at the edges of the nest, where temperatures average approximately 31.5 Celsius or 89 degrees Fahrenheit, 
needed 22 to 24 days from egg laying to emergence. Brood at the center of the nest, where temperatures are on average three degrees Celsius or four to five degrees Fahrenheit warmer, only required 20 to 22 days to complete their development. Elevated brood nest temperatures also help prevent and manage disease. A study by Anna Maurizio in the 1930s demonstrated that chalk brood, a fungal disease, cannot infect a brood maintained at a steady temperature of 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Allowing the nest to cool to 30 degrees Celsius or 86 degrees Fahrenheit resulted in successful transmission and infection of chalk brood. A more recent study by Phil Starks identified a brood comb fever response by honeybees when the brood nest is exposed to chalk brood spores. Dead larvae covered in the fruiting bodies of the chalk brood fungus were ground down and added to a sugar solution. When fed to colonies, it was noticed that the exposed colonies raised their brood nest temperature by nearly 0.6 degrees Celsius or 1 degree Fahrenheit. Considering that the normal range of brood comb temperature has a 2 Celsius variation from 34 Celsius to 36 Celsius, we can see that this seemingly mild increase of 0.6 Celsius is actually highly significant. It also appears to have been effective, as Stark reported that none of the colonies exposed to the fungus were subsequently infected. Sadly, the effect of high brood ring temperatures on viruses is currently unknown. However, studies of other insects has shown that increased temperatures can assist in preventing viral transmission. So it is possible that this adaptation by honeybee colonies also assists in their resistance to viruses and disease overall. Finally, as previously discussed, we know that the ability to heat the nest cavity has hugely benefited honeybees in their move to less temperate climates. The honeybee is a tropical insect, but the ability to maintain a steady heat during even bitterly cold external temperatures has allowed this remarkable insect to survive all over the world. We move on now to the section called warming the colony. As previously mentioned, a winter cluster of honeybees maintains a core temperature of 34 to 36 degrees Celsius, which is 93 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit when they have brood, and 18 Celsius or 64 Fahrenheit when they do not. The outer layer of the winter cluster is maintained steadily above 8 Celsius or 46 Fahrenheit. These lower temperatures are critical, as bees at temperatures below 18 Celsius cannot activate their flight muscles to produce more heat, and bees cooled below 8 Celsius become unable to move entirely and enter what Seeley describes as a chill coma. A bee subjected to temperatures at or below 10 Celsius or 50 Fahrenheit will perish within 48 hours. Fundamentally, a colony maintains a steady nest temperature by controlling both heat production and heat loss. The winter cluster loses heat by conduction through the ceiling of the nest cavity and via the combs, convection by air currents moving through and within the cavity and cluster, evaporation, respiratory evaporation from the adult bees, surface evaporation of the brood and any damp comb, and thermal radiation, heat that radiates out from the cluster through the 
unoccupied comb surrounding it, as well as the nest cavity's walls. A diagram of heat loss from a colony overwintering in a Langstroth hive, which I will share on my blog, demonstrates these modes of heat loss. It also shows that the temperature of the very bottom of the hive was the same as the outside temperature, which at the time was minus 21 Celsius or minus six degrees Fahrenheit, while the air around the cluster at the top of the hive was much warmer, minus one degrees Celsius or 30 degrees Fahrenheit. A honeybee colony has two primary ways to reduce heat loss to the surrounding environment. One, by reducing heat loss from the colony to the nest cavity, and two, reducing heat loss from the nest cavity to the outside environment. The rate of heat transfer from the cluster and the nest cavity increases proportionally to the difference in temperature between the inside and the outside. Knowing this, we can see that insulation provided by the nest cavity plays a key role in minimizing heat loss. Thick, well-insulated walls will have a lower rate of heat transfer to those that are thin or cracked. Honeybees also decrease this rate of heat, heat transfer by the mere act of clustering. When the temperature within the nest cavity drops below 14 Celsius or 57 Fahrenheit, the cluster is formed. If the temperature continues to fall, the bees press together more closely, thereby shrinking the overall size of the cluster. At around minus 10 degrees Celsius or 14 Fahrenheit, however, the cluster contraction reaches its limits and no further reduction in size is possible. Between the onset of clustering at 14 degrees Celsius and the limit of cluster size reduction at minus 10 Celsius, the honeybee cluster shrinks almost five times its original size. That's an exceptional reduction in size and therefore surface area. This decrease in surface area helps decrease heat loss by thermal radiation. The tightly pressed together bees also reduce heat loss by convection or air currents, since there is less space for air to move through the cluster, and the outer mantle of said cluster forms a tight barricade of little bodies to block air from entering the inner layer. This method of reducing heat loss by clustering is so effective that a study by Edward E. Southwick demonstrated that this rate of low heat conduction actually matches or is even less than that of birds and mammals of equal weight to the cluster. This means that the outer layer of bees is as effective at preventing heat loss as the feathers of birds and the fur of mammals. And that is truly incredible. Now we know that the thickness of tree cavities used as nest sites provides valuable insulation to the colony. The thick bark of the tree conducts heat very slowly, so the warm air of the internal cavity is slower to cool. One benefit of this slow rate of heat loss is that the bees inside the nest cavity can remain active through more of the winter months, making it easier for them to have access to the honey stores needed for their survival. Conversely, bees that nest in such environments might be slower to wake up in the spring, as the thick walls of the tree are also slower to heat. Once they become cold, it takes longer for them to warm up, which could delay spring emergence of the colony. In contrast to these thick-walled nest cavities, we know that our man-made hives provide very, insulation, very little insulation for the bees, who must cluster tightly in order to survive the cold temperatures outside, which are more quickly affecting the internal temperature. 
This means that the internal microclimate of a man-made hive versus that of a wild colony's nesting cavity will be affected differently. To further explore this difference in microclimates of the hive, Seeley prepared a study with his colleagues Robin Radcliffe and Haley Schofield to monitor the temperature of two different nesting cavities, one with thick walls and one with thin walls. This study was actively ongoing at the time of publication of The Lives of Bees, so the following is going to be presented in present tense, although it's very likely that as I'm reading this now, the study has long since been concluded. So for the two cavities, one was built using standard pine lumber and the other was cut into the trunk of a large sugar maple tree. Both cavities are identical in size and shape, tall and narrow, volume 50 litres or 13.2 gallons and entrance size 5 centimetres or 2 inches. The key difference between them is the thickness of the walls. One has walls a mere 2 centimetres or 0.75 inches thick and the other walls are 36 centimetres or 14 inches thick like those of the average nest cavity in the wild. They are located next to each other each containing two temperature sensors and recorders, which are positioned in the centre of the cavity. A sensor and recorder is also placed between the two colonies to measure ambient temperature. The goal of the study is to measure the internal temperature of the nest cavities over a period of two years, one year with no heating, and one year where each cavity contains a 40 watt heating element to simulate the heat that would be generated by a two kilogram or 4.4 pound colony of honeybees, which is what we would expect to see in overwintering wild cluster. Initial results taken during two weeks in April 2018 show interesting differences in the two different nesting cavities. The tree cavity internal temperature is overall more stable, growing less cold at night and less hot during the day. The thin-walled hive box, by contrast, had an internal temperature that exceeded that of the ambient temperature on warm days and showed sharper drops in temperature at night. Seely notes that it's too early to tell what the overall results of this study will yield, but he feels that it is showing promise in helping better understand how a colony's nest cavity aids in winter's survival. Great insulation alone, however, cannot keep a living system warm. Some heat must be generated. We now know that a worker bee generates heat by isometrically contracting her flight muscles, raising the temperature of her thorax to as much as 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. A honeybee colony uses both heat production and heat loss reduction via clustering. As ambient temperatures drop from 30 degrees Celsius or 86 Fahrenheit to around 15 Celsius or 59 degrees Fahrenheit, heat production increases. It then remains relatively stable until the ambient temperatures drops below 10 Celsius or 50 Fahrenheit, at which point the bees once again increase their heat production. However, once the ambient temperature drops below 15 to 10 Celsius, heat production declines. Why is this? Because this is the temperature at which the bees form a well-insulated, tightly pressed cluster that resists further heat loss. Since the cluster continues to shrink down until the temperature is around minus 10 Celsius or 14 Fahrenheit, reducing heat loss continues until this temperature is reached, while heat production is slowly generated. 
Seeley posits that perhaps the reasons that colonies do not cluster at higher temperatures is due to it limiting colony activities such as foraging and food storage. Now we move on to the section entitled Cooling the Nest. Earlier in the chapter, we learned how sensitive honeybee larva is to even small changes in temperature. Just as the brood nest needs to be warmed at times, it also needs to be cooled. If the brood is subjected to temperatures just 2 to 3 degrees Celsius or 3 to 5 degrees Fahrenheit above 36 Celsius or 97 Fahrenheit, their development will be disrupted and they can perish. One cause of colony heating is simply the metabolic processes of all the bees, including those incubating. Thin-walled, man-made hives also face the threat of high outer temperatures heating up the internal cavity during the warmer or the hot months. Honeybees are just as good at cooling a nest as they are of heating it. A study conducted by Martin Landauer in southern Italy demonstrated just how stable honeybees can keep their internal nest temperatures, even when subjected to extremely hot conditions. He placed a colony of bees within a thin-walled, wooded hive on a lava field in Salerno, Italy, that receives a large amount of sunlight each day. He found that the colony's internal hive temperature never rised above 36 degrees Celsius or 97 Fahrenheit, even if the outside temperature soared to a whopping 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Landauer had also placed an empty hive nearby and recorded that its internal temperature reached 106 degrees Fahrenheit at the peak of the day. So we can see that the bees are actively cooling their nest. So how do bees do this? Well, they use three primary cooling mechanisms. One, spreading out the adults within the nest and partially evacuating it, which reduces internal heat production and increases heat loss via convection. Two, fanning, which is forced convection, forced movement of the air. And three, spreading water on the combs, which uses evaporative cooling. Amazingly, fanning bees are deployed throughout the nest in chains that are aligned such as to drive the air along existing currents. So they work with the airflow, not against it. Fanning bees will also stand outside the opening of the nest, abdomens pointing away, to pull the warm air from inside the nest cavity to the outside, which honestly just seems incredibly clever and sophisticated to me and really blew my mind. Jacob Peters and colleagues at Harvard University has studied the velocity of airflow at the hive entrance, finding that it can be as high as three meters per second, which is 10 feet per second. This high velocity is only present when the brood nest temperature is reaching dangerous levels. So they reach this level of velocity when they're working very, very hard to cool the brood nest. The volume of airflow has also been studied by uh, Engel H. Hesselhoff. Now he constructed a hive with two openings, one at the top and one at the bottom, connected to an airspeed indicator, which is known as an, oh God, let's see if I can pronounce this, anemometer, okay? A nanometer. There we go. So with this setup, he was able to measure airflow through the hive produced by the fanning bees. At one point, he observed 12 bees spaced evenly across the 25 centimeter or 10 inch wide hive entrance, all fanning steadily. 
The airflow rate at this time was up to 1 to 1.4 litres, which is 0.26 to 0.37 gallons per second. That's a heck of a lot. Hazelhoff also discovered that high levels of carbon dioxide within the nest cavity will trigger fanning behaviour, which means that fanning is also a behaviour that benefits the colony's overall respiration, not just as a form of temperature control. The average carbon dioxide levels within the nest cavity when bees are not actively fanning is 0.7 to 1%, which is 20 to 30 times greater than normal air percentages, which are 0.03 to 0.04%. This means that the internal nest cavity is much stuffier than we might have expected and further demonstrates how incredibly well adapted the honeybee is to live in these densely populated social structures. Previously in the book, we learned how the entrance of wild honeybee nests are relatively small, about 10 to 20 square centimetres, which is 1.5 to 3 square inches. This would seemingly provide little natural airflow. So how do bees ensure they ventilate their nest cavity as needed? Jacob Peters and his colleagues sought to answer this question and found that fanning bees positioned themselves asymmetrically around the nest entrance so that the air enters and exits continuously around its perimeter. Honeybees sense the air temperature, highest where the air exits, and position themselves with the direction of the airflow wherever the air is hottest. This means the bees use the airflow, not other fanning bees, to maintain the inward and outward flow of air through the nest entrance. At times when increasing airflow is not enough to cool the nest, honeybees use evaporative cooling by dispersing water droplets across the comb. To turn from a liquid to a gas, water uses a great deal of heat, thus removing that heat from the nearby environment. Think about the process of us sweating. It's triggered when we're hot and it aids in cooling our body and thus our core temperature. Just as foragers will gather pollen and nectar, they will also seek out water to bring back to their colony. In fact, recent studies have shown that some foragers specialise in water collection and will travel as far as 2 kilometres or 1.2 miles to a water source. Water is essential to a honeybee colony, not just for cooling, but to dilute stored honey, produce brood food, humidify the nest to prevent developing brood from becoming too dry, and as a source of hydration for the bees themselves. Thomas Seeley recounts a time in winter when he noticed that the colony that lived in his office observation hive was making multiple trips out and back on a mild winter day. At first, he thought they were simply going on cleansing flights until he noticed a few bees performing highly vigorous waggle dances. He saw at least 339 repetitions of the waggle dance, which was more than he had ever witnessed before. He was able to discover that these very excited bees were transmitting the coordinates to puddles of melted snow in the parking lot and water collectors were soon zipping back and forth only to be mobbed upon return to the hive by many thirsty bees that were eager for a drink. This made Seeley ask himself, is this level of winter thirst normal for bees? And it seems as if it is. A beekeeper in Scotland, Anne Chilcott, recorded bees collecting water in January and February, even on overcast days, as long as the temperature was above 4 Celsius or 39 Fahrenheit, so still quite low. 
Helmut Kovac and colleagues at the University of Graz, Australia, measured the thorax temperatures of wintertime water collectors using an infrared camera. While loading up on water, the forager activates her flight muscles to keep her thorax temperature consistently above 35 Celsius or 95 Fahrenheit. This was observed even in temperatures as cold as 3 degrees Celsius or 37 Fahrenheit, very cold. Of course, when we consider that flight is inhibited in bees when their thorax temperature drops below 25 Celsius or 77 Fahrenheit, this shivering behavior to maintain heat makes perfect sense. And it does demonstrate what a key adaptation this behavior is to the honeybee's evolution and subsequent survival. Knowing that bees grow thirsty over the winter months, Seeley wondered if condensation within the nest cavity might be beneficial to the colony, as opposed to the detriment that beekeepers often see it as. Perhaps this would explain why so few wild colonies have nest cavities with upper entrances, which would allow warm, moist air to escape. One researcher, Derek Mitchell, notes that a well-insulated nest cavity without a top vent hole will not have cold condensation drip down upon the cluster. The temperature of the ceilings and walls above the bees is above the dew point, so condensation will not form here. Instead, it will form on the lower, cooler walls which are below the bees. Perhaps this condensation then acts as a source of fresh water for those bees that are thirsty over the winter months. This could also explain why bees cover the walls of their nest with propolis as the water droplets will not soak into the wooden walls and instead slide off and down. Seeley decided to investigate how water collectors within a colony are galvanised to begin their vital task. With the help of his two students, one was an undergraduate and one was a PhD at the time, he moved a colony into a glassward observation hive, which was then placed into a greenhouse, allowing them to completely control the bees' access to a water source. Only one source of water was provided, and it was placed on a set of scales so that they could monitor its drop in weight as the bees collected water for the colony. To stimulate water collection, they heated the hive with an incandescent lamp. As bees began to visit the water, they were collected and marked to allow for easy identification during the study period. By watching these marked water foragers, it was noted that water collection began approximately one hour after heat stress when the lamp was turned on. This indicates that the bees were not responding to the internal nest temperature as an hour is insufficient time for it to have heated considerably. Instead, it appears as if the bees are activated by personal thirst and or the thirst of other bees begging them for drinks of water. A previous study by Seeley and Suzanne Kulnholtz found that an active water collector keeps informed of her colony's water requirements by what she experiences upon returning to the hive. When she returns, she looks for receiver bees to take her water load. In times of need, there are more bees to receive and few, if any, rejections of the water. In times when water is not as vitally required, she will face a longer time finding a receiver bee or experience more rejections. In this way, she can easily address her colony's water needs. Do honeybees store water for later use? It's not common, but some studies have reported finding small amounts of water stored in the comb during periods of drought in Australia and South Africa. Bees can also store water in their crops, their honey stomachs. 
O. Wallace Park documented his observation of bees acting as water reservoirs during spring in early Iowa when water sources were scarce. Water collectors were noted to fly out en masse, returning to give these reservoir bees their water loads. Seeley adds that he's also found water-filled bees just standing quietly on combs after a day of heat stress. It is likely that this temporary storage of water in both reservoir bees and comb plays an important role in colony function and therefore colony survival. And that's it for chapter nine. Yay! Next up, we will learn all about colony defense and then we will be at the final chapter on Darwinian beekeeping. I am very excited to get these last chapters out to you. Maybe this book review that never ends will finally end. And really it's very exciting because the final chapter on Darwinian beekeeping is the one chapter that I recommend everyone read straight away. If you don't feel like you have time to go through the book step by step, just skip to the end and read that chapter because it condenses everything that's been discussed and that's been covered. And it produces it in a way that not only allows us to compare directly the differences between wild colonies and managed hives, but it also gives recommendations to us as beekeepers about how we, how we can best use this information about wild colonies to assist our managed colonies. So I'm very excited about it. As always, thank you so much for listening, for reading along with me, um, just tuning in. I really hope that you're all staying safe and happy out there. Um, please remember to wear your mask in public and to avoid crowded areas. Um, I'm not sure about where you guys are, but uh, my county has gone back up to red alert again after it relaxed um, a number of precautions and we're also going to be moving into flu season so it's going to be doubly rough out there get your flu shot if you can uh, keep in mind that we're only going to get through this as a community so please abide by the health guidelines for your area don't become complacent I know this is normal life for us now but we have to remember that we need to protect ourselves and we need to protect the people around us particularly those who are vulnerable like small children, the elderly, and those with health issues like diabetes or autoimmune issues. So please wear your mask, please be safe. And also, I know I've got time to talk to you about this, but remember to vote. I don't care what side you vote for. If you have the right to vote, please exercise that vote, voting right. It's very important. I am a dual citizen. I'm a citizen in England and I am a citizen here in the United States and I vote in every election I possibly can, including my local ones. Don't forget your local ones. Those are very important. In fact, they're arguably more important than the big presidential elections because it's the local level that can sometimes enact the biggest change. So get those mail-in ballots ready if that's how you're protecting yourselves. Go out there, vote, do your part. So as always, you can find me on all the social media platforms, although you're more likely to find me on Instagram. I just love it over there. Um, and you're welcome to email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com. I always love to hear from you guys, whether you want to ask me a question, just kind of chat. That's all fine. Um, corrections also totally fine. Uh, please just uh, let me know what you're thinking. Let me know what's going on with you. I just love to hear from you all. And I think that's where I'm going to leave you today. So I hope this was interesting. I hope that you are staying safe and you are taking care of yourselves. And please remember, hug your hands and then wash your hands.
Talk to you soon. Take care.